Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Welcome back to Patrick Boyle on Finance. Today we're going to look at the dot-com bubble and the lessons for today's hot tech sector. The dot-com bubble started in 1995 and it burst five years later in 2000. Today in another technology boom, let's look back and try and understand how it was similar and how it differs from what's happening today and if there's anything we can learn from the mistakes of the past. The dot-com bubble was kick-started by the launch of Netscape, the first internet browser that displayed images in line with text instead of in a separate window. The software was free to all non-commercial users and it was pushed out to the public by internet service providers and computer magazines. The internet had just become accessible to the public and it was growing fast, way faster than radio or television had when they were new technologies. In 1990, only 2.6 million people had access to the internet and five years later, 45 million people had internet access and the number of people online was more than doubling every year. Something very exciting was happening and it was clear that the internet was going to fund fundamentally changed the way business was done in every part of the economy. Netscape went public in 1995. Frank Quattrone, the hottest tech banker of the 1990s, led the offering at Morgan Stanley. He planned on offering the stock at $14 per share, but demand was so intense that in the days leading up to the IPO, he made the controversial decision to raise the price three times, first to $21, then $24, and finally to $28. In addition, he increased the number of shares to be sold from three and a half million to five million. The stock more than doubled on its first day trading. Netscape, a loss-making company with tiny revenues, now had a market value of almost three billion dollars. The Netscape IPO had the fourth biggest first day price spike in stock market history at that point. On the day of the IPO, almost 14 million shares changed hands, meaning that the initial 5 million shares that were offered turned over almost three times in one day. The fuse had been lit. Netscape showed the world that a company didn't have to be profitable to go public. The view was that if a company could grow that fast, it would eventually become extremely profitable. Online retailing was one of the hottest sectors in the late 90s. Many of the dot-com companies promised a grand vision of a more efficient way of doing business. Priceline.com is a good example of this. It was a company with a clever solution to a real-world problem. Every day, half a million airline seats were going unsold. Priceline offered these seats online to its customers, allowing them to name the price they were willing to pay. Through this auction method, the public got cheaper flights, airlines sold excess inventory, and inefficiencies were ironed out of the market. Priceline, of course, took a cut for their role, a win-win-win-win that could only be provided by the internet. 
Priceline mimicked Yahoo by building a brand through relentless marketing. In their first six months, they spent more than $20 million in advertising, hiring the legendary rock musician, and also he was a Star Trek actor as well, William Shatner, to do their TV ads. The strategy seemed to work, placing Priceline fifth in internet brand awareness by the end of 1998. When Priceline went public in 1999, it went public with a market cap of $10 billion, the largest first-day valuation of an internet company to date. Investors were unconcerned that in its first few quarters in business, Priceline had run up losses of $143 million. They were also unconcerned by the dirty secret that Priceline often had to purchase from the airline's tickets at prices well above customers' lowball internet bids due to technology issues. Priceline at the time lost on average $30 on every ticket sold. The Globe.com was another hot stock, an online community network giving users the freedom to personalize their profile, interact with other people with similar interests, and publish their own content. Basically, Facebook in the 1990s. It went public in 1998, posting the largest first-day IPO gain in history, closing up 606%, with an intraday high being up 1,000% versus the IPO. IPO price. In 1999, CNN then filmed the CEO and founder, Stephen Paternot, dancing on a table at a Manhattan nightclub, wearing vinyl pants with his girlfriend. He shouted to the camera, I've got the girl, got the money, now I'm ready to live a disgusting and frivolous life. Paternot became known as the CEO in the leather pants, and the share price dropped rapidly, falling from $97 to less than 10 cents over the next six months. The website eventually shut down in 2001. The dot-com bubble brought about a fever for entrepreneurship that hadn't existed in the United States since before the Great Depression. By 1999, 1 in 12 Americans surveyed said that they were in some stage of founding a new business. In October of 1999, the market cap of the 199 internet stocks tracked by Morgan Stanley's analyst Mary Meeker was $450 billion. The total annual sales of these 199 companies combined came to only around $21 billion. And their profits? Well, there weren't any. The collective losses, though, came to $6.2 billion. A well-known banker, when interviewed on CNBC in 99, said, People come in here all the time and say, The last thing I want to do is be profitable, as then I wouldn't get the valuation of an internet company. Before the dot-com boom, most companies went public after being in business for six or seven years. Now venture capital firms were getting involved with companies weeks and months ahead of their IPOs. They would simply fund them in order to pay for the stock offering prospectus. By 1999, most of the investment bankers had offices in Silicon Valley. And there were stories of bankers contacting companies on the day they moved into their offices to discuss going public. The founders were still setting up their desks and plugging in their computers and so on. 
in the late 90s, computers were getting faster and cheaper every day. It was an exciting time. I still had a full head of hair, and Elon Musk at the time was the bald founder of PayPal. Interest rates were low, and capital gains tax rates had been cut, all just adding fuel to the speculative fire. In 1999, there were 457 IPOs, most of which were dot-com stocks. 117 of those at least doubled on their first day of trading. Many companies had no revenues and no customers. Some, like Pets.com, didn't even seem to provide any efficiencies by being online. They sold things like pet food that was easily accessible to customers at supermarkets and at notoriously low margins for stores. Selling pet food online, where people would need to wait days to receive it in the mail, made no sense at all. Their mascot was a sock puppet, which was all over the TV at the time. It was sort of a celebrity sock puppet, if you can imagine such a thing. And it was interviewed on talk shows and had its own giant balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Within months, however, the puppet became the poster child for the entire meltdown. Everyone at the time wanted to either start an internet business or day trade internet stocks for a living. At the time, I knew a dentist who quit his job in order to become a day trader. I remember him explaining to me that all you had to do was see what stocks people were discussing in the online chat rooms and buy those ones. As long as you kept moving on to the next hot thing, you could easily double your money every month. Some of the startup ideas will sound familiar to people today. Cosmo.com had a business model built around the online ordering and delivery of goods such as food, DVDs, or even Starbucks coffee. The promise was delivery within an hour by bicycle, car, truck, or public transportation. There was no delivery fee. Webvan was a grocery delivery company operated by a team of executives who had no experience in the supermarket business or in logistics. In June of 1999, the Federal Reserve did their first of three interest rate hikes for the year, designed to cool an overheating stock market. But with each rate hike, stocks would just rally more. Many argued that higher borrowing costs should not matter for these stocks, as they have no debt, and nothing can slow down their growth. While the IPO business was booming, individual investors did not necessarily do as well in these IPOs as you might expect. The shares were allocated to big institutional investors, and retail investors jumped in late. The trading was so frenzied on IPO days that retail investors would put in a trade and not know till the end of the day if they'd been filled or at what price. The internet boom affected the world of finance in many significant ways. Equity research, which had previously been a sleepy area of finance, suddenly changed. Many leading stock analysts were suddenly involved in roles that had previously been reserved for investment bankers, such as helping companies to go public and marketing their stock to investors. When Priceline went public, its CEO said that the company chose Morgan Stanley to run its IPO mainly because the firm employed Mary Meeker, a top-ranked internet analyst. The month after Priceline stock started trading on the Nasdaq, Meeker, of course, issued a buy recommendation. She kept that buy recommendation in place until March 2002, when the stock had fallen almost 97% from its peak value. 
Meeker's career demonstrated how equity analysts were now all of a sudden rainmakers at the investment banks. An analyst increasing the price target on a dot-com stock could cause it to double in a day. One of the most famous analysts at the time was Henry Blodgett, whose days as an analyst are best remembered for his bullish views on Amazon. In 1998, while an analyst at Oppenheimer, Blodgett predicted that Amazon would rise from $240 to $400 a share. His report sent the stock up $46 to 289 in one day, causing Bludgett to clarify that the $400 price target was for 12 months' time, not one day. Nevertheless, the shares rocketed through that target within weeks. Bludgett then moved to Merrill Lynch, where his multi-million dollar pay package made headlines. Frank Quattrone, who we mentioned earlier, the banker who took Netscape public, had demanded at Morgan Stanley that he be given leadership of the equity research team that covered technology. Morgan Stanley said no to him, and so he took his team to Deutsche Bank. Within two years, he switched again for an even better deal at Credit Suisse First Boston. Quattrone got one-third of his team's revenue at CSFB. In addition, Quattrone and his senior bankers made money from their investments in venture capital firms that were feeding him deals and through investing directly in pre-IPO startups. Quattrone was ultimately investigated by regulators for allegations that he improperly distributed shares of hot IPOs to favoured executives and venture capitalists, a group that were known in Silicon Valley at the time as Friends of Frank. He was eventually sentenced to 18 months in prison, convicted of obstruction of justice relating to a federal investigation of initial public offerings of stock. He later got out of this on appeal. In 2003, New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer published internal emails in which Merrill Lynch's Henry Blodgett criticized technology companies he covered while recommending them publicly. The SEC charged Blodgett with securities fraud. He paid $4 million in fines while neither admitting nor denying the charges. He was banned from the securities industry for life. Jack Grubman, a telecom analyst at Solomon Smith Barney, paid $15 million in fines for similar conflicts of interest. The SEC alleged that Grubman had allowed the investment banking team to influence his research reports. Grubman neither admitted nor denied the allegations, but was also permanently banned from the securities industry. We'll be back after a quick break. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. The investment banks, in addition, paid hundreds of millions of dollars in fines relating to their dot-com wrongdoings. 
So how did it all end? Well, in the direct marketing or business to customer sector, which a lot of these firms would have fit into, a customer's lifetime value to a business matters a lot. It's basically how much money in profit can a business expect to make from each customer. Many of the dot-com companies were bringing on customers with a lifetime value to the business of around $10, but they were spending $60 to $80 in customer acquisition costs. This just couldn't work. The Super Bowl in 2000 was referred to as the dot-com Super Bowl, where 17 dot-com companies paid $44 million for 30-second ad spots during the game. One was a wedding invitation printing company who spent twice the company's total revenue on a 30-second ad. This was obviously unsustainable. In February 2000, Ravi Shuria, a convertible bond analyst at Lehman Brothers, published a report on Amazon. I'll put a link to the report in the description below. He followed it up later with a report on the telecom sector. He detailed Amazon's deteriorating credit position, knocking the stock down 20% in a single day. Jeff Bezos took the unusual step of publicly disparaging the report, calling the analysis pure, unadulterated hogwash. In subsequent reports, Shuria picked apart the company's balance sheet. Some of his research was so controversial within Lehman Brothers that they refused to release it. In the year after Shuria's report, Amazon lost 90% of its value as other analysts joined in in worrying about its ability to generate cash. Shuria was quickly hired away from Lehman by hedge fund manager Stanley Druckenmiller, and today he runs his own hedge fund. On March 10, 2000, the prices of dot-com stocks peaked and the slide began. No one factor pricked the bubble. The Fed had started raising interest rates three times in 99 and twice more in early 2000, and the Fed's language shifted to an open attempt to rein in equity prices. Wall Street analysts also began advising their clients to lighten up on internet stocks, saying that the technology sector was no longer undervalued. More than anything else, though, there was simply a realization that many of these questionable companies had no real chance of ever making money in the long run. By April 2000, the Nasdaq had lost more than a third of its value. Over the next year and a half, hundreds of once hot companies saw the value of their stock drop by 80% or more. And for most, no recovery ever came, even for the biggest names. Trillions of dollars in wealth vanished even faster than it had appeared. By the time of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, there was no longer any doubt that the dot-com boom was over. In that month, for the first time in 26 years, there were no IPOs brought to market. The dot-com era wasn't a disaster for everyone, though. Some people walked away big winners. Between September 1999 and July 2000, founders of dot-com companies cashed out at twice the rate they'd sold during 1997 and 1998, walking away with gains of around $45 billion in total. In the month before the Nasdaq peaked, corporate insiders were selling 23 times as many shares as they bought. It would appear they knew their business models were flawed. 
of the 14 dot-com companies that advertised on the Super Bowl in 2000, in less than a year, five were gone. For the next Super Bowl, E-Trade, a company that survived the bubble, produced a commercial that showed a chimp riding a horse through a ghost town of defunct dot-coms. The ad ended with the line, invest wisely. A number of dot-coms survived the bubble and are hugely successful businesses today. Survivors include Amazon, eBay, Craigslist, E-Trade, and many more. These were companies with smart and thoughtful leadership, functional business models, and somewhat realistic projections. Their founders, while being aggressive business people, did not overspend the way the failures did. Technology companies that do everything from manufacturing phones through to social media platforms now account for nearly 40% of the S&P 500, compared to 37% in 1999. Apple, which last year became the first US company to hit a $2 trillion market cap, accounts for around 7% of the index right now. At its peak, it was 8% of the S&P, the largest share ever for a single stock. While tech stocks may be expensive today, they're still nothing like they were 20 years ago. Many of today's technology companies replaced other huge businesses, things like advertising, television, and brick and mortar retailers. Warren Buffett, a value investor who famously stood on the sidelines during the dot-com bubble, is a big investor in Apple and some other technology stocks today, arguing that this time the numbers make sense. When the bubble burst in 2000, there were only around 400 million people online worldwide. Today, 4.7 billion people are online, 59% of the global population. There's a much bigger audience for today's dot-coms. Many investors were scared away from investing and from technology firms in particular after seeing the bubble burst. While it's easy to see similarities between some of the tech firms today and those from 20 years ago, it's worth noting that most of today's companies actually do have technology that works rather than a rough business plan and some VC funding. Today, the cost structure for tech firms is so much lower with things like affordable server space and scalability that wouldn't have been possible at all 20 years ago. There are some questionable business models today and some over-the-top projections, but that's not such an unusual idea. Such firms have pretty much always existed. Before the dot-com bubble burst, telecom companies raised almost $2 trillion and crisscrossed the globe with digital infrastructure. 80 million miles of fiber optic cable were installed in the United States alone, representing 76% of the total digital wiring installed in the United States up until that point in time. The resulting glut of fiber in the years after the dot-com bubble meant that there was huge overcapacity in bandwidth for internet usage that allowed the next wave of companies to deliver sophisticated new internet services on the cheap. Much like the railway bubble of the 1800s, all of the money poured into tech companies in the 1990s created an infrastructure and economic foundation that would allow the internet to mature. The cost of bandwidth fell by more than 90% since 2004, despite internet usage doubling every year or so.
five years after the bubble, as much as 85% of broadband capacity in the United States was still going unused. Without this overcapacity, companies like YouTube and Netflix would not be viable today. So are all bubbles bad? Definitely not. They definitely cause a lot of turmoil and transfer of wealth. But the dot-com bubble drew billions into building out internet infrastructure. This would have eventually happened, but it happened in five years rather than the 20 to 50 years that it might have taken without the investment bubble. The COVID pandemic of 2020 would have caused much more economic damage and much more individual misery without all of the technology that we have in place today. The creative destruction of the dot-com bubble led to today's digital golden age. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.